0: OK, the reading question was on the exchange force. Uh, and surprisingly, nobody got a completely correct answer. So an answer is, the geometric consequence of the symmetrization requirement for multiparticle quantum mechanical systems which results in identical particles with symmetric wave functions being squeezed together and those with anti-symmetric wave functions to be repelled. So a lot of people said it had that bosons were attracted and fermions were repelled. But if you got to the end of the section, it explained that there are other quantum numbers. It, so for fermions in particular, there's a spin quantum number. The spin part of the wave function could be anti-symmetric and the spatial part could be symmetric. And the exchange force, force in quotes, it's only, only depends on whether the spatial part of the wave function is symmetrized or anti so fermions can be attracted by the exchange force and that they end up closer together because their spatial wave function is symmetrized and their spin wave function is anti-symmetrized. So they are saying results in the covalent bonds? Yeah, that's what goes into covalent bonds, yeah. Um, more questions? The most interesting topic was the brief mention in one of the problems of muonic hydrogen. How many other types of non-standard atoms are there? So that depends on how long you want them to live. So there's lots of uh, other particles that live for very short times. So essentially, there's an infinite number of uh, more interesting hydrogen atoms where you replace the electron by some other charged particle. But there are just a few that live as long as a muon. Uh, so, charged pions and kaons have roughly the same lifetime as a muon. So people have also studied those. The other ones live much shorter, have much shorter lifetimes than muons. So they're very hard to study. So no one's actually observed them. Yeah. Why do they have shorter lifetimes? Because they decay into something else. Oh. They're unstable. Uh, was a little confused about what specifically the exchange operator P does to a two-particle system. So the exchange operator takes this particle here and a particle there. Exchange operator moves them, exchanges their positions. So in the wave function, if the wave function had particle 1 at R1 and particle 2 at R2, then particle 1 is at R2 and particle 2 is at R1. Uh, So we have three classifications or categories of particles that we're looking at, indistinguishable, distinguishable, and then identical. So uh, identical means the same as indistinguishable to be. So two electrons are identical or indistinguishable, but an electron and a proton are distinguishable because they have different quantum numbers. The proton has a different charge than the electron and a different mass. Uh, I'm interested in footnote on page 215. That means you're not reading the same version of the book as the rest of us, Sorry. Uh, which says that not every two-particle <laughs> wave function is a product of two one-particle wave functions. In the case that we have states that are more complicated are the exchange forces that come into play for bosons and fermions, simply attractive and repulsive, or does it become more complicated. So this was actually covered at the end of the section 2. the The case with the electrons, when they're In the singlet state, that's an anti-symmetric spin state. So in that anti-symmetric spin state, uh, the wave functions are not just a a product of the two wave functions, like he says. One is up and one is down. And then there's a superposition with down and up. So you can't write that as just a wave function of one times a wave function of two. So that's the famous entangled state. So, but that's that was covered that was exactly why he got the attractive covalent bonding so it's not that much more complicated how can positronium exist shouldn't the electron and positron destroy each other well they do but before they do they can form a bound state so it's a question about time scales how long does it take to, for positronium, positronium to form and be a, in a quasi-stable state and how long does it take the electron and positron to annihilate? And the answer is that it depends on what the value of n is, the principal quantum number. So if they're in an excited state where they're uh, far apart, their wave functions don't overlap at the origin. So if you think of the positron being at the origin not really like that but there's the radial distance just like in hydrogen is the distance between them. So you need the probability that you're at r equals zero for them to overlap and annihilate. So in states where that wave function at the origin is zero it will take them a long time to annihilate because first they'll have to drop down to a lower state. So typically they have to get down to the ground state and then annihilate. And that still takes some Electromagnetism like magnetism is uh, not very strong force. Alpha. In other words, alpha is 1 over 137. So that's a small number compared to 1. So it takes a while. And uh, we're not going to calculate how long it takes. We are going to calculate later how long it takes to, to go from excited state down to the ground state. <coughs> I'm confused about why the interaction between overlapping wave functions is referred to as an exchange force. I think I'm confused because I've heard exchange forces referred to as force produced by the exchange of force carrier particles. Are they related somehow? So electromagnetic forces means that you're exchanging photons between particles. So there is an exchange, but it's the exchange of an intermediary particle. So they're not related except that this word exchange appears in both. Uh, Page 204 Griffiths states there's no such thing as this electron or that electron. All we can legitimately speak about is an electron. This is more of a general question but I'm confused on if we know that we have two particles then we can surely measure one or follow it. How is Griffiths statement true? (coughs) So if you have an electron here and an electron there and they're going off in opposite directions then you're really not confused about which one's which. But if they were coming this way and passed close by each other Or if they were going this way, parallel, or almost parallel, if they got close to each other, how would you know that they didn't get swapped somehow by bumping into something? You'd have to be able to follow all the details. But if you followed all the details, like you'd have to know their position at every moment. But then you wouldn't know their momentum, so they wouldn't be where you thought they were. and It's quantum mechanics. One confusing part of the section is the Slater determinant mentioned in problem 5.7 is constructing this matrix, the idea behind constructing completely antisymmetric wave functions. So the idea is that taking a determinant is, a determinant is completely antisymmetric in all the elements of the matrix. So it's just a simple way to re- remember how to make something that's antisymmetric <coughs> in two things. It's easy to write down how to antisymmetrize in two things. But if you have 10 things gets a little confusing on this later determinant. A is a short way to write it, because you only have to write that matrix with the determinant around it, instead of writing out all the terms explicitly. (coughs) And if you remember how to take the determinant, then it tells you how to do the anti-symmetrization. OK, so last time we almost finished up uh, how to add angular momentum. Oh focus. So we we did an example where we combined uh, an L equals 1 orbital angular momentum with spin a half. We constructed the highest possible total angular momentum state, which was uh, 3 halves because 1 plus a half is 3 halves that's the most angular momentum you could have then we lowered that with a lowering operator and we constructed a multiplet with total <coughs> angular momentum j equals 3 halves and jm going from 3 halves to minus 3 halves and then to make up the rest of the states we found we could take an orth- uh, orthogonal wave function to this guy, which also has z component a half, but has total angular momentum one half. And then we found two more states. So in general, what we're doing when we're adding angular momentum is we're taking things that are eigenstates of individual angular momentum, like orbital and spin, and writing that in a new basis where we have eigenstates of total angular momentum and total z component of angular momentum. To do that, these will just be some linear combination of those. Just like when you, in space, when you change coordinate systems, the new axes are linear combinations of the old axes. So these eigenvectors work the same way. The new eigenvectors are linear combinations of the old eigenvectors. There's some coefficients that we can calculate by this lowering procedure. And uh, we know that the z-components just add together. So if we want a particular value of the z component of the total angular momentum, then we know that we only have to look at states where the z components of the individual guys add up to that value. So when we take this sum over all the possible guys, it's restricted that m plus s m has to equal jm, because z components just add. And then we sum over all possible values of L and S and put in these coefficients that we extract from this procedure, (coughs) the Klebsch-Gordon coefficients. So I'm going to do this one more time for a general case. So we did two specific examples. Now we'll do the completely general one. So let's combine a state with angular momentum L and spin S. So the highest state will have J equal to L plus S, and that state, uh, so we can write that state as J equals L plus S, Jm equals L plus S, that's equal to LL ss then we can act with a lowering operator we'll get a state that still has total j equals l plus s but jm will be l plus s minus one lowering operator doesn't change the magnitude of the angular momentum vector. It just changes the z component. That's what we saw when we worked out all those commutators. So in general, lowering this guy will give us some linear combination. There'll be some coefficient that we get from the lowering operator acting on the orbital part. <coughs> and it'll, it'll lower the orbital part by one. It won't do anything to the spin because J minus is L minus plus S minus. So L minus will only act on the orbital part. and Then we'll get a piece acting on the spin part. So it won't do anything to the orbital part. We'll get... I ran out of room. We'll get to S S minus 1 for the spin state. And then if we normalized it, it would be 1 over a squared plus b squared, (coughs) square root get a normalized state. Then we can keep acting with the lowering operator. So we can go each time we act with L minus, we can take this down one unit and go all the way down to minus L. And the spin we can go down all the way down to minus s. so the next time we act we'll we'll get things with l minus two and s l minus one and s minus one, and l and s minus two if if the s is big enough. So eventually we'll get to the lowest state The lowest state is l minus l s minus s. Just like the highest state, it's a unique one. There's only one way to get total J's. Total Jz is minus L minus S. Does that part make sense? But then we still don't have the complete set of states, because now there's also states with J equals l plus s minus 1. And this state has its own highest state, with jm equals l plus s minus 1. And it must be orthogonal to this other state with l plus s minus 1. So once we have this guy, we know this guy. To be orthogonal means we take the overlap between the new state and this state, we have to get zero, so that means we need up to an overall phase, minus B times that, guy with L minus 1 plus A times the L, S minus one state. So when we take the overlap, we take the complex conjugate of this, overlap with that. These guys are normalized, so we get minus AB. This one only has an overlap with that. We get plus AB, so they're orthogonal. And then we connect with the lowering operator again we have the stamina to keep going. So that won't change the total j. It'll give us a state with uh, jm equal to l plus s minus 2. And in general, it has to be some linear combination of L-2, S, L-1, S-1, <coughs> and L and S-2. And then we can keep going, eventually we'll get to bottom state, and then if the J is big enough, we can go to the next guy, which will have total J is L plus S minus 2. Till we get all possible states. So in general, this guy, state, there are 2L plus 1 states here, and 2S plus 1 states for the spin. Pardon me? So the total number of states we have to get is 2L plus 1 times 2S plus 1. And if you work it out, um, take all these states, there's 2L plus 2S plus 1 states here, and then there's 2L plus 2S minus 2 plus 1 states there, and after you've gone through the whole set of those, you can convince yourself that it equals this number of states that we started with. So it is a proper change of basis. So total number of states for a fixed that, that we started with, yeah. For, for We started with a fixed L and a fixed S. Then 2L plus 1... There's 2L plus, plus 1 times two S plus 1 states up here in this basis. And then when we lower that to get J equals L plus S minus 1, then we have to have a similar formula. But once we get all the possible values of J... That's so so when, we get, when we go through all the possible lowerings, we eventually get to a J that's L, absolute value of L minus S. So the J values run from L minus S, L minus S plus one, up to L plus S. And then for each one of these, there's a Jm that starts from the uh, minus L minus S up to L minus S and here J-M goes from L plus S to minus L minus S. Okay, so that formula 2L plus 1 times 2S plus 1 is when you fix J to the L plus S? No, it's when I sum over all, of all values of J and J-M Given these constraints, yeah. Let's say you have to go and make a third set of uh, states for like the next one down. Yeah, then, um, then would there it would have like two vectors you could, or two states you could pick to be orthogonal to. That's right, because then we'll have three. We'll have three states involved. Uh-huh. So, but you've already constructed two: one here and one there. So the third one that's orthogonal to both of those is unique up to an overall phase again. So the thing that um, we're not bothering with is there's a Clebsch-Gordon phase convention. That Someone decided, Clebsch or Gordon, or one of their friends, decided that every time we do this, we'll make this guy here a particular phase. But it's just an arbitrary choice. And that's what's in those tables. There's some phase choice that's built into those tables that we're not bothering to learn how to read. When you compare your answers with the web calculator, it will, it has the same phase choice. So your answers might differ; might be minus the answers on the web calculator. But I'll, if every if every term is just a minus from their calculation, then that's fine. That's just an overall phase in the wave function. If just one of your terms has a minus, then there's a problem. So, are there any questions about uh, adding angular momentum? You're going to get to practice it many times. Is there a reason we constructed this new basis? or just <coughs> um, Well, one reason is that we, want, we might be interested in the total angular momentum. And <coughs> often what happens in reality is that the total angular momentum commutes with the Hamiltonian, but L and S don't. So if we're interested in energy eigenstates and eigenstates of angular momentum, then we have to do this. So it's, usually we're forced to do it. Sometimes we just do it because it's fun. Is there any more questions? It is fun. So by doing this, you've already learned a big piece of group theory. Because what we're doing is constructing um, irreducible representations of the group with particular quadratic Casimirs. So if you'd been living in the 20s, you could have worked out angular momentum and invented a whole bunch of group theory at the same time. So, Part of, part of group theory, I think, was uh, they took these angular momentum calculations and generalized them. That's a big part of uh, most of what you learn in graduate school will be S-U-N, What you've just learned with spin is SU2. So it's just a generalization. Where am I? Okay. Now we're doing chapter 5. If there's no more questions about angular momentum. So, two particle states. So, if we have two particles, then we'll have a wave function that depends on two coordinates and time. And we'll still have the same Schrodinger equation. And our Hamiltonian now has to have two kinetic terms. There's a grad squared acting on coordinate one, so that gives us the momentum squared of particle one. And there's one for particle 2. They might have different masses, M1 and M2. And there could be a potential that depends on both the coordinates. And we can still normalize the probability to 1, but we'll have to integrate over space twice. Once for the position of particle 1 and once for the position of particle 2. So, if we suppose we had the very simple situation that particle one, that's supposed to be a one, is in state psi A, and particle two is in state psi B, then it's pretty obvious that the overall wave function. would be psi A of R1 times psi B of R2. But if the particles are identical, like two electrons, then it couldn't be so simple. So for identical particles, the wave function will be some linear combination of the interchange. Because if they're identical, I could interchange them. The Hamiltonian won't know if they're identical the energy has to be the same. So if we're looking for energy eigenstates, interchanging them should give the same energy. So in general, we'd have to consider a linear combination. And it turns out that if they're bosons, you use a plus sign, so that's a symmetric combination. Fermions use the minus, which is the anti-symmetric combination. <coughs> I remind you that bosons are guys with integer spin. So that's the Higgs has spin zero. The photon has spin one. Graviton has spin two, if it exists. Fermions are half integer spin, so electrons have spin a half, quarks have spin a half, neutrinos have spin a half. No one's found an f- elementary particle. That has been three halves. Although some people like to dream about them. Some people are dreaming that they'll find them at the LHC. If they do, well, fantasy called supersymmetry. We're not going to talk about it. So, why is this the case that uh, bosons get a plus and fermions get a minus? It's one of our quantum questions. And the answer is here in this book. It's called PCT Spin and Statistics and All That. And at the time, it was a very clever title because there was a best-selling history book called 1066 and All That, which you guys should have read. Battle of Hastings. Anyway, they thought they were they thought they were being very clever with their title. <laughs> So, on Friday, I'm going to give you the short hand-waving summary. But suffice it to say for now that you need relativity combined with quantum mechanics in order to understand why bosons get a plus and fermions get a minus. And since quantum mechanics plus relativity is actually a new subject called quantum field theory, I can't actually do the mathematics for you to prove it to you. Because it takes half of this book. Well, if you do it properly. There are shorter d- derivations, but still we can't do it. So I'm just going to give you the hand-waving version. Yeah? Um, quantum field theory is a new subject, but they've known this for a really long time. Right? Um, so it? they sort of knew quant- quantum field theory around 1930, but they didn't understand how, how to actually calculate anything properly until 1948 or something. So yeah, it's an old subject. But strangely enough, we don't teach it in undergraduate classes yet. It's a fault of the curriculum. So ideally, we should be teaching quantum mechanics in high school. Then we could be teaching quantum field theory for undergraduates. But someone has this crazy idea that you should first learn classical mechanics. Before you can learn quantum mechanics. Which is it's all backwards. Because the real world is quantum mechanical and classical mechanics is just an approximation. So once you understand quantum mechanics, classical mechanics is just really easy. Is it quantum mechanics just an approximation of quantum field theory? Quantum mechanics is an approximation of quantum field theory. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you should learn special relativity in high school. Yeah, yeah I heard some. It's pretty good. Okay. So, given this, we're just going to assume this for today that fermions get a minus sign. That tells you from that you get the Pauli exclusion principle. <coughs> if you have two identical fermions with exactly the wave, same wave functions, then the overall wave function is 0. So that means you can't have two fermions in exactly the same wave function, because it couldn't be anti-symmetrized then. So in general, you could think about using the exchange operator. We'll call it P today. So if I exchange the particles, and then exchange them back nothing should have happened so that means p squared is the same as 1 the identity you didn't do anything but if p squared is equal to 1 then its eigenvalues must square to 1 so we've derived the eigenvalues they're plus or minus 1 and if we have identical particles, then P must commute with the Hamiltonian. Because if they're identical and I switch them, the energy (coughs) couldn't have changed because I have the same particles at those positions as I had over here. So that means for the energy eigenstates, the wave function with particle at R1 and the second particle at R2 must be plus or minus the wave function with particle 1 at R2 and particle 2 at R1. So this is just the formal way of saying what we just said. We have to use the plus sign for bosons and the minus sign for fermions. happy. (laughs) We also know that uh, there's more things to life than position. There's also spin and other quantum numbers. So we can think of our wave functions as being a spatial part times a spin part. Let's call it uh, with a different letter called the spin part chi. If we had quarks, then there's also color quantum numbers. So there'd be another factor for color. So for fermions, we can either have anti-symmetric spatial part and symmetric spin, which gives an overall anti-symmetric. Or we could have a symmetric space part and an anti-symmetric spin part, which is anti-symmetric. And we know the symmetric spin wave function is the spin what what's the total spin in the symmetric spin wave function for spin-half fermions? Total spin for spin one half. Hmm? Now if I have two spin one half fermions and a symmetric spin wave function, <coughs> their total spin is spin 1, because if the, both the spins were up and I interchanged them, nothing happened, so it's symmetric. it's symmetric. So this is the triplet, also known as spin 1. This guy is the singlet, because when we lower it and then take the orthogonal state, the orthogonal state is anti-symmetric. I'm sure we talked about this not too long ago. And for bosons, we can have symmetric times symmetric, if we had to spin one, say. That gives us symmetric overall. Or we could have a- anti-symmetric times antisymmetric. That would also be symmetric overall. Because each of the anti-symmetrized guys, when I do the exchange operation, will give a minus one. Minus one times minus one is plus one. The same logic was here. I got one minus sign <coughs> from the anti-symmetric guy and a plus one from the symmetric guy. So two triplets together to make a boson and two singlets together to make the boson as well. Um, say that again? Like a singlet, a particle of a singlet state, and another particle of a singlet state together form the well, helipoposon. Two fermions in a singlet state um, give you total spin zero. So if that was a bound state and you weren't probing at short enough distances to see that it's made out of something else, you would think it was a spin zero particle. So when they discovered the pion, it's made out of quark and an antiquark in a spin zero combination. So it was perfectly, at the time, it seemed like it was a spin zero particle. Only later did we get uh, experiments that could probe inside and see that it's made of a quark and an antiquark. that make sense? No? Pardon me? It sense. It's just sad. What's sad? <laughs> they didn't know about quarks, uh, so what else could they do? They didn't, I mean, we have learned, yeah, we've learned something since 1930. So what about our uh, exchange force? Just draw a little. Here's my derivation of the exchange force. So suppose I had two particles that could live near this, uh, so this is space. This is a plot of the wave function. And I have two possible states. My particle could be there, or my particle could be there. Give it some tail. If I make the symmetric combination of that, then I add those two guys together, I'm getting something. Well, let's just draw it in. I'll get some double hump thing. Sorry. I'll get some double hump thing. But the probability where these guys are in the middle is not so small because it gets a contribution from both. But if I take the anti-symmetric combination, then I'm getting something that has to go through zero there. And then it has another bump down there. It's a wave function, so it can be negative. But now you see the probability to be in the middle is very small. So, that's why it looks like they're being repelled. Here, the probability to be in the the middle is bigger, so it looks like they're being attracted. So, let's do some atoms. So, we solved all the atoms with a single electron well, at least ionized hydrogen plus ionized atoms, ionized down to a single electron. Now, uh, we'll take a stab at doing neutral atoms. So we'll have, in general, we'll have Z electrons, where Z is the number of protons, the charge of the nucleus. So our Hamiltonian, we'll have a sum. We'll label our electrons with J, Go from 1 to J. We'll have a kinetic term for each electron. So there's a grad squared J acting on the J electron. And we'll put in some reduced mass. All the electrons have the same mass. That makes life nice. They also have a Coulomb potential that attracts them to the nucleus. goes like 1 over R and Z times alpha because there's Z protons in the nucleus and then all the electrons repel each other so we'll have a sum over J not equal to K and we need the one over the distance between the two electrons and it's got a plus sign because it's repulsive and it's got a half because I counted everything twice, because I summed over j not equal to k. Yeah. That, uh, the Hamiltonian term, the first term in the brackets, the minus h bar z c z alpha over is that an r? That's n r j. So since it's just our first attempt, we'll just neglect this term because. We've already solved this part, so that's good. This part is very hard to solve. So we'll come back to it in a later chapter, when we've built up our uh, mathematical muscles, learned some new techniques. So neglecting that term, uh, it's very easy to solve these problems. So for helium, we have z equals 2. And the wave function will just be a product of hydrogen wave functions with the substitution that alpha goes to Z alpha. So they're labeled by NLM. The other one we'll call N prime, L prime, M prime. And so the ground state must be N equals 0, L equals 0, M equals 0. And the same for these guys. But electrons are fermions, so the overall the total wave function should be anti-symmetric this looks pretty symmetric under exchange. So, symmetric spatial wave function means anti-symmetric spin wave function, which means singlet. So the spin is anti-symmetric. So, it's a singlet. And for some reason, the spin singlet guys are called para. So that's para helium. And if we work out the energy levels, we just need the two principal quantum numbers, <coughs> and we'll get a contribution from each guy. Um, where here, En is the energy level for the nth hydrogen level and I've got a factor of 4 outside. Why is there a factor of 4? Because z is 2 and we changed our Hamiltonian we used to have alpha for hydrogen, now we have z alpha the binding energy goes like alpha squared so we get 2 squared in each term and then these guys, that's an n prime for the ground state these guys are equal when an n and n' are 1 so we get a factor of 8 times the binding energy of hydrogen which is minus 13.6 electron volts so we get minus 109 electron volts so the experimental value is minus 79 electron volts so we're good within uh, Thirty percent. So it'll be good when we include this term later on. We'll get a much better answer. What do we get? Prime me. What do we get? Uh, I forget, but it's we're going to do it two different ways, and we're going to get darn close. What about excited states? So. So if we stick with the singlet states we can have uh, symmetric wave functions, so we can excite one of the guys. Should I call this zero, zero, 0, The ground state has n equals 1, I believe. You guys are supposed to yell at me when I do stupid things. So if we make this state symmetric, since the spin part is anti-symmetric, we have a combination (laughs) like that. Now, once we have excited states, we can also make anti-symmetrized spatial wave functions. So we can have symmetrized spin wave functions. So they'll be triplets. And there's those are called ortho. <coughs> so the spatial part is anti-symmetric and the spin is symmetric, so we, that's a triplet state. And so we could have states. Spatial part can be the anti symmetrized guy. So, because the spatial part is anti symmetrized, are the electrons closer together or further apart? so they're further apart. That means the repulsion term will be smaller because it goes like one over the distance. So that means, since this is a repulsive part, they'll have a lower energy. So the ortho guys, ortho guys should be... have lower energies than the corresponding para guys which is confirmed by experiment. You guys can see that. Okay, so now that we understand hydrogen and helium, hydrogen has one electron, helium has two electrons, which one's bigger? How many people think hydrogen is bigger? How many people think helium is bigger? How many people don't think? <laughs> <laughs> Just the ground state. Ground state. So we'll try again. How many people think hydrogen is bigger? Wow. How many people think helium is bigger? Okay. It was an actual computer simulation. I couldn't do the experiment in time. So, here's hydrogen, here's helium. So, uh, I've got twice as many dots here because that's to show you that there's twice as many electrons. So, I measured each dot. means I measured an electron position. So, I measured twice as many times here because there's twice as many electrons. So, hydrogen, helium. Helium is smaller because nucleus has a bigger charge so the electrons are pulled in more it's a deeper potential well then it's not as deep as it could be because there's still some repulsion from the electrons so this is including that repulsion <coughs> I'm just, I could just look at these all day so what about lithium How many No, it goes. So how many people think lithium is bigger than helium? How many people think helium is bigger than lithium? Here's lithium. So what happened with lithium? So this sort of looks like helium, but now we've filled up the n equals one level. We've got two electrons in there, we can't put another electron in there. So we have to go to n equals two. N equals two wave function is spread out. So this is a pattern that sort of repeats across the periodic table. As you go across the rows, things get more tightly bound. Then when you go down to the next row, you have to go up to another level. So generally, you you get bigger. Yeah. So, So the way it goes sort of in general, Still ignoring the repulsion, we just for Z protons we'll have our NLM <coughs> orbitals for hydrogen. There's two electrons per orbital, because uh, if they're in the same orbital, that means the spatial wave function is symmetric, so their spin wave function has to be anti-symmetric, so if they're in the singlet spin zero state. And we calculated before that there's an n squared full degeneracy guys wondered why I bothered to calculate what the degeneracy was? Because we want to understand the periodic table. So for the first energy level, there's, we can put in, pack in two electrons. So it takes us hydrogen and helium, will fit in there. Then in the next level, there's a two squared degeneracy times two possible electrons. So that means we can add up to eight electrons. So there's four different spatial wave functions, and we can put two electrons in each one. So we get eight in there. Then for the third, it's three squared times two, 18. Four squared times two, 32. Five squared times two is 50. So this should give us the structure of the periodic table. And so here's our prediction. Here's counting how many boxes there are in the periodic table. It works, it works, it doesn't quite work. So what went wrong? So we neglected that repulsion term. So when you get about here, you have to start taking care of the repulsion. I don't know if you can read this. Can you guys read that? So here's the actual uh, quantum numbers of the outer electron. So hydrogen ground state is 1, 0, 0. Helium, you just put 2 in that state. But the Z is bigger, so they're squeezed in more. Lithium, you have to move up to the N equals 2 level. Beryllium, you can still fit another one in the N equals 2 level. And when, still L equals 0. But now the L equals zero, N equals two levels full. So when we get to boron, we have to go to L equals one. And then we can have six of these guys. Since there's two L plus one states, L is one. So it's two plus one is three. And we can put two electrons in. Because we can have spin up and spin down. So that's six more states. That gives us eight. Uh, That one worked with the periodic table. (coughs) Then we go up to three, get two more in the L equals zero, six more in the L equals one. But then instead of going to L equals two, the next electron goes into N equals four, L equals zero. And that's because the repulsion effects are starting to become important. So when you include the repulsion effects, the N equals four, has a lower energy level than the n equals 2, l equals n N equals 3, l equals 2. Because, so being in n equals 4, those guys are spread out more, so they have less repulsion. So, to get beyond the argon, to understand the periodic table, you have to include those repulsion. But this also, going through all this, I this, mean, including all the repulsion effects, you can keep going all the way down the periodic table. And when you get to Krypton, you get uh, you look at the total angular momentum. The krypton, the total angular momentum, adding up all those 36 electrons, you get total J equals 0. And, when you go to, now you uh, go up to silver, 47 electrons. Keeping track of adding up all the elec- angular momentum of the 47 electrons it would be a good homework assignment. Okay, we <laughs> no, won't do that. We'll just trust that they did it correctly. The answer you find is that the total angular momentum is one half. So now. And this means there's two states in one half. It's redundant notation. The so total j is one half for silver. So now we understand why Stern and Gerlach discovered spin when they sent silver atoms through their machine. The total angular momentum was spin a half because there's one unbalanced spin from an electron. So the total atom has the same spin as just one electron. So it's split into two beams. But they couldn't have known that at the time, because they would have had to do <coughs> they would have had to a know proper quantum mechanics, not the Bohr model, and then calculate wave functions up to 47 electrons, including repulsion. So why are using silver in that? <laughs> because Bohr Bohr's theory predicted that <laughs> silver would have this funny thing for the wrong reasons. Uh, what time do you guys have? My, my watch says one fifty-six. Okay, you're supposed to yell at me when I run over, too. Sorry.